welcome to Tales from the Other Side. I'm your host, Kat Wiseman, and thank you for joining me once again for some spooky tales. I hope you guys are hungry, that's right, hungry, because today we're featuring some of the best slash some of my favorite creepypasta stories. Uh, This is the first creepypasta episode in a series that I'll be putting out intermittently between other episodes, so I figured we'd start with some of the highest rated creepypastas, so you may recognize some of them, but fear not, or rather do fear, (laughs) because they're still guaranteed to give you the spooks, and I'm not kidding with these, Um, I'm actually recording this during the day, because I'd planned on recording last night while I was looking up which ones to do, but got a bit too freaked out to actually read these to a microphone while in the dark by myself. Uh, So I totally understand if you need to listen during the day, but if you want the full creepypasta experience, go ahead and dim the lights, get comfy cozy, make sure you can see all the exits wherever you are, and uh, go ahead and get a weapon of some sorts if, if you'd like, if that'll make you feel safer, whatever's laying around. Uh, So we're going to start off with five of the top-rated creepypasta stories. Uh, It's up to you to decide how much truth there is to them. I like to pretend there's at least a little nugget of truth in there because it makes it that much creepier. Uh, Then I'm going to finish up with some posts from a Reddit thread inspired by a creepypasta Reddit thread of true creepy stories, just in case you're still feeling safe by the end of these. (laughs) Oh, and along that same vein, don't forget that I'm always accepting your true creepy slash ghost stories at TalesFromTheOtherSide7, that's the number 7, at gmail.com to read at the end of each episode. So be sure to get those in and help give us all a little scare with your own true ghost stories. Okay, yeah, and so without further ado, let's get as creepy as possible. Okay, I'm a little, I'm just a tiny bit sorry about that one. Anyway, um, yeah. (laughs) Okay, so the first creepypasta that we're going to be reading, I found this post of the scariest creepypastas from each state, and I was reading through them, and I found this one, and it's short, uh, not, not so sweet, (laughs) um, one from Missouri, and... I decided to go with it because a few of the other ones are pretty long, so this is a nice, good little creepy short one to start off with, and it's called The Ozark Cable Incident. As a child, I grew up in a small southern Missouri town just north of the Ozark Mountain Range. There were about 10,000 people living there, and for the most part, they preferred to keep to themselves. It was a weird mentality you never ran into often in the south. During the summer, following my second year of elementary school, all of that would change. In this town, there's only one provider for television. It was an old cable provider known as Ozark Cable, which served southern Missouri and northern Arkansas. It only broadcasted 10 channels, and given that satellite wasn't available within 100 miles of my town, I had to make the best of it. In fact, the only children's programming available was Tom and Jerry reruns, which broadcasted out of Little Rock on Sunday mornings. Needless to say, my options for cartoons weren't particularly extraordinary. At the beginning of summer vacation following second grade, my family received a notice from Ozark Cable, as did the other 10,000 residents in town. The statement noted that a new high-tech broadcasting station was to complete construction just north of town. In addition, my town would now be receiving 30 new channels, including Nickelodeon. 
I was excited as any child my age would be. Hell, I would finally be able to watch new cartoons any time during the week. During the third week of summer vacation, the broadcasting station went operational and my small town finally entered the digital age. Static no longer interrupted regular programming, show lineups no longer switched without notice, and, of course, I finally had Rocco's Modern Life. Overall, I was a pretty happy seven-year-old kid. That's when it started. I heard it first from one of my friends. Apparently, his parents had been watching late-night entertainment around midnight or one in the morning when sporadic interferences in the broadcast began to occur. Images of an eyeless man flashed on the screen for seconds at a time, accompanied by startling loud white noise. Apparently, it was loud enough to wake my friend up. Unsettled, his parents contacted the cable provider and notified them about the incident and were subsequently told that it would be looked into. However, the problem persisted. Eventually, it became so frequent and widespread throughout the town that my parents actually prohibited me from watching any television between midnight and dawn. Not that I was interested in doing so, anyways. Soon, no one watched any late-night television. There were rumors of television sporadically turning on and displaying the eyeless man, seeming to reach out towards the viewer. There were just rumors. One Thursday morning, while my dad was at work, my mom needed to run into town and picked up a prescription from a local pharmacy. Normally, I was forced to accompany her on, a on her daily expeditions into town, but after begging to stay home to watch the new episode of Ren, Ren and Stimpy, she surrendered and left to run her errand. After sneaking a few cookies, I sat in front of the TV and waited for the episode to begin. The episode began as usual with the catchy theme song and glimpses into the antics of the characters. Then the picture went black. You can only imagine how enraged I was. I had been waiting all week for this new episode, only to have the channel go out. After parading around the TV room in a fit of childhood frustration, I sat in front of the television and waited for the broadcast to resume. A brief spark of static appeared on the screen and I sat in eager anticipation for this episode to resume. Images of decomposing and disemboweled bodies filled the screen, accompanied by ear-piercing screams that filled the house. I immediately ran out of the TV room, but not before looking back at the television. A man with bloodied holes for eyes seemed to approach the screen with his livid, decaying arm reaching out. I hid under the dining room table and began to sob hysterically. In my fit of nauseated terror, I vomited on the floor. When my mother came home, she seemed to jump back at the noises that consumed the house, and immediately dropped her bags and pulled me out from under the table. I was hysterical, and my face was pale with fear. Before I could answer my mother what had been going on, she entered the TV room. The screaming stopped. She unhooked the television. When I finally told her what happened, we heard a knock on the door. It was my friend and his parents. He was sobbing and was hiding his face against his mother's shirt. They experienced the same thing I had. Everyone in town did. Almost immediately, local law enforcement became involved due to the nature of the images. After a week of no television and sleeping in my parents' bed, the local police department issued a statement. It wasn't as conclusive as we had wished. About five months before the original notice in regards to the new broadcasting center, Ozark Cable bought a piece of land that belonged to a long-abandoned sanitarium, an on-site burial ground. In addition to demolishing the decrepit building, over 200 bodies were exhumed and cremated without warrant to make room for the miles of underground cables. Ozark Cable was immediately fined and its owner was prosecuted. After three months of legal battles, the cable company eventually shut down, with satellite television taking its place soon after. The source of the images remains unknown. It is also unknown how the broadcasts even happened in the first place. Doors I was adopted. I never knew my real mother. Rather, I knew her at one time, but I left her side when I was too little to be able to remember. I loved my adopted family, though. They were so kind to me. I ate well, I lived in a warm and comfortable house, and I got to stay up pretty late. 
let me tell you about my family real fast. First, there's my mother. I never called her mom or anything like that. I just called her by her first name, Janice. She didn't mind at all, though. I called her that for so long, I don't think she even noticed. Anyhow, she was a very kind woman, and I think she that she is the one who recommended my adoption in the first place. Sometimes I would lay my head against hers in front of the television, and she would tickle my back with her nails. She's one of those Hollywood mothers. Second, there's Dad. His real name was Richard, but he never really liked me much, so I began to refer to him as Dad in a desperate attempt to gain his affection. It didn't work. I think that no matter what I called him, he would never love me as much as his own child. That's understandable, so I really didn't press the matter. The most notable attribute of Dad was his unmoving sternness. He was not afraid to pop his children when they did something wrong. I found that out before I could use the restroom properly. He didn't hesitate to spank me. Well, I'm in line, and it's because of his methods. Lastly is my sister. Little Emily was really young when I was adopted, so we were about the same age, but she was slightly older. I like to think of her as my little sister, though. We got along better than any sibling could possibly get along. We would always stay up late together and just talk. Well, she did a lot of the talking. I mostly just listened because I loved her. It was a great setup we had. We were short on bedrooms, so because I didn't want to sleep in the living room by myself when I was littler, I had a pallet set up for me next to her bed on the floor. This is where I've slept since, but it was cool with me because I enjoyed being with her and I had always felt pretty protective of my little sis. Everything changed on a horrible Wednesday night. I was at home taking a nap when little Emily opened the front door. The sound of the door opening pulled me to a state of consciousness, and I walked from the room down the hall to the living room. That's when I first remembered it was Wednesday. I was never any good at keeping track of what day it was. Actually, I'll just go ahead and say it. My sense of time was horrible. But nevertheless, I knew it was Wednesday because Emily had just come home from her church's youth group gathering. She walked in front of the door and hugged me, and then was followed in by Dad and Janice. You have a good nap, Janice said teasingly as she ruffled my hair. I just shook my head and snorted in a manner that clearly expressed that I was teasing back with her. Don't you snort at your mother like that, said my father gruffly with authority. He shut the door behind him and hung up his coat. I was clearly joking, I growled under my breath. He must not have heard me because I didn't feel him smack me. Emily then proceeded to our room and I followed. She started telling me about her day, you know, usual teenage girl stuff. But I listened so that she would feel better. After her summary, she suggested watching TV, and I obliged and jumped onto the couch as she was going for the remote. She rolled her eyes at my little brother-like immaturity and scooted me over and sat down. The TV turned on, and we watched it together until the sun went down. Emily was the kind of girl that, instead of watching cartoons and soap operas, would rather watch Discovery and Animal Planet and Natural Geographic. I liked those, too, so I didn't mind. Actually, those were the only channels that could hold my attention. So it got late, and Janice walked up behind the sofa. Emily, it's past your bedtime. Turn off the television and go to your room. You too, she pointed at me. Emily turned off the program we were watching grudgingly and stood up. She started down the hallway to our room. As I followed, I couldn't shake the feeling that something wasn't right. We went into our room and Emily turned off the light. And just as she did, I caught a flash of movement out of the corner of my eye. It was out the window, but as soon as I redirected my line of sight to where the window was no longer in my peripheral vision, what it was that I thought I saw was gone. I still remained alert, for my sister's sake. I laid there in the darkness with nothing but the thin ray of light from the street lamp outside to illuminate the room. It wasn't much. Time and time again, I could have sworn that I heard subtle sounds just outside the window. A twig break, leaves crunching, clothes jostling, and all the while I could smell a faint stench of sweat and blood. I kept my eyes open most of the night. The sounds outside subsided and the smell left my nose. I began to feel at ease. My eyelids closed. 
Not long after that, I heard a very loud crash on the other side of the house. I was up in an instant. There's someone in the house, I barked with extreme adrenaline cursing through me. Wake up, I shrilly pleaded with Emily. She did, and as soon as I saw her sit up, I ran to my parents' room. Dad was dead. His neck was splayed open and gaping as blood spilled out of it, off the bed and onto the floor. I saw that the master bathroom's door was closed, and just before it, on the outside, was a man. A man, I don't feel comfortable calling it that. He was very large and rugged. He turned around and saw me, and that's when I saw him accurately for the first time. I won't forget it. His eyes were large and beady and trapped with lust. He was styling a beard that was badly unkempt with blood dripping off. His clothes were dirty and his face was cold. Just then I noticed the same horrid smell of sweat and blood from earlier, but this time it was overwhelming. He saw me. He saw me and grinned with a set of crooked yellow teeth. That smile threw me off. I thought that I was going to die, but then he turned back to the bathroom door completely unperturbed by my presence. I was terrified and didn't know what to do. I just yelled and cried. I watched as he shouldered through the door that was my mom's only protection. I watched as he raised the large razor that he was carrying, but had obviously neglected to use properly. I watched as he sliced her open and tore her to shreds. I then heard something, the last thing I wanted to hear. It was Emily's scream coming from behind me. The large monstrosity looked up from my butchered mother and stared at my little sister. I was distraught. He stood up and quickly started walking towards us. My sis turned and ran, and I was at a loss when he bypassed me and went straight for her. Why was she still in the house? Had she not assessed the situation and run? Apparently not, and now she was dead and I was alone. I ran after them both. I expected the man to kill her as he had the rest of my family, but I was sadly mistaken. He grabbed her by the arm and jerked her as a way to make her clear that he was in control. He dragged her through the house. I was making all of the noise I could now, hoping and praying that someone would come to my aid. He mustn't take her, not her. As he passed me, I backed against the wall and whimpered with terror. Why? He didn't respond except by putting his free hand on my head while Emily screamed in the other and saying, Good boy. He gave another crooked grin and a very cold, unnatural laugh. I followed him to the door where he dragged my helpless sister after him. He opened it, pulled her out, and slammed it shut behind him. I'm now sitting in the house with my mutilated adoptive parents, shivering and whimpering with dismay. He's out there with her, doing who knows what to her, and I can't do anything. I would if I could, but I can't. I would chase after them in a heartbeat, but I can't. I sit here, looking at the front door. I look down at my paws. If only I could open doors. The Basement Since I was little, I've always lived with my grandmother. My mother divorced when I was very young, but remarried shortly after. Due to their financial situation, my grandmother turned her garage into a place for my mom and her husband to stay until they could get on their feet and get a house. There wasn't enough room for me there, so I kept staying at my grandma's house. My mom and stepdad got their finances in order and bought a new house. I was already attached to the neighborhood and had a few friends, so I was asked whether I wanted to move with them or not. I chose not to and finished the rest of my schooling living at grandma's house. I moved out for a while with some acquaintances, but that fell through after about a year. I needed to move again and thought this would be the perfect time to finally live with my mom for a little while and get to know both her and my stepdad better. Back then, I was just dating my wife, and we planned on getting married as soon as we were able to save up the cash for our wedding. So it wasn't going to be a very long time. We figured it would be quickest if we stayed living with our parents so we could fund the wedding ourselves without incurring any debt in addition to our school loans. My sister had gone away to college, so I was able to crash in her old room in the basement. 
The basement had a really nice setup. You would walk down the open stairway from upstairs, and to your left was a door that led into the basement. To the right was another door that led to the laundry room with a bathroom, an extra refrigerator, and the door to my room. To the left was the entertainment room and wet bar my stepdad had built. It was a really nice setup with surround sound that I've watched plenty of action movies on when I'd come over to visit. I got my stuff set up on a Friday night, pretty impressed I was able to get it all moved in in a single day. I was pretty beat and quickly fell asleep. The next day, roughly middle to late afternoon, I was coming downstairs to go to my room and play some video games when I stopped at the entrance to the basement. I looked left toward the wet bar, where there was an empty space with an old rocking chair. The room was dimly lit by the sunlight pouring in through the basement doorway. The rocking chair didn't move or anything like that, but I just had this eerie feeling that something was over there. I didn't feel as though whatever it was was staring at me. I could just feel a presence in the room, and I really didn't like it. I moved through the laundry room and into my room and closed the door. I decided I'm being stupid, played some video games, and forgot all about it. It must have been roughly 1 a.m. when I decided to go to bed. My parents typically stayed up until 3 or 4 a.m., so I could still hear them clicking away on their laptops upstairs, playing casual games together until all hours of the night as I headed to the bathroom outside my room to brush my teeth. My mother noted that it can be pretty hard to wake up in the morning with the door to the laundry room and my room shut since the sunlight won't pour in. Knowing this, I'd left my laundry room door open. As I walked past the laundry room door that leads out to the entertainment room, I could feel the presence again. It was definitely more pronounced this time. I could feel the hair standing up on the back of my neck, and I quickly moved into the bathroom and shut the door. I finished up my nightly duty and bolted back to my room, only a few feet away. I shut my bedroom door and contemplated leaving it closed. I really hated not waking up on time in the morning, and I knew I wouldn't if the room stayed permanently dark because the door was blocking any sunlight from coming in. I cracked the door open, not too wide, but wide enough that the sunlight would shine through in the morning, turned my box fan on low, and crawled into bed. I've always been kind of paranoid, so I made sure when I set my room up that the bed faced the door, feet pointing toward the same wall, so I could look out the room. I closed my eyes and tried to fall asleep, making sure I was tucked in toward the wall as far from the door and edge of the bed as possible. After a couple of minutes, I could feel it again. I'm being watched. I cracked my right eye open ever so slightly so I didn't look awake should it be true that I was being watched. My door was open much farther now, almost all the way. Likely this was due to the fan blowing, I thought to myself, but I was still uneasy. I opened my eyes slowly, watching the darkness slowly shift and flow while my eyes tried to adjust to the inky blackness. I simply could not see through the darkness. I could feel the presence now, the feeling of not just being watched, but someone or something being there was now stronger than ever, just beyond my doorway. I closed my eyes again and tried to remain calm. I'm being stupid, I thought to myself. I've never been scared of the night before. Why should I be now? As I tried to mentally psych myself out so I could get some damn sleep, I felt the presence shift. I kept my eyes shut, for I wished not to know what lie beneath the veil of night. The formless void crept into my room slowly, moving itself across the room, catty-corner to my bed. The presence remained there for a long time, all the while I dared not move, afraid I would garner more attention from the presence. After what seemed like an eternity, the presence began to shift and move to other parts of my room, yet never coming any closer to my bed. I pushed myself to ignore whatever I was feeling and busied my thoughts with video games and what I would be doing the next day. After a short while, I was able to drift into a dreamless slumber. From then on, every night I could feel this presence watch me from just outside my doorway, always coming in for a time and shifting around my room, never coming close to me. 
I got to thinking I was either just acting like a child or the stress of the wedding planning was forcing my mind to play tricks on me. Even though I was convinced of these facts, I never opened my eyes when I felt the presence come in, nor do I sleep without my back facing the wall. This had gone on for roughly eight months before I simply got tired of it. I was tired of feeling this presence watching me, hating the eerie feeling it gave me. I decided that enough was enough, and even though I was worried I'd sleep too late without sunlight helping to wake me up in the morning, I left my door closed for the night. I kept the same sleeping position, back against the wall, just in case. For a few minutes, it seemed like the feeling wouldn't present itself, but shortly after I convinced myself of the fact, I could feel the presence again, just beyond the doorway, waiting in the laundry room. I felt a little more secure in that I knew it couldn't see me anymore, but I still didn't like the fact that I could feel it waiting, lingering in the shadows, just outside my door. The next night, I decided to not only close my door, but also close the laundry room door that led out to the entertainment room and upstairs. It didn't help much. That night, I could feel the presence lurking in the entertainment room, pacing around the wall and door that separated me from the rest of the basement. It was still unsettling, but the feeling was lessened enough that I was able to sleep much better. I began to shut both doors at night, but this came at a heavy price. I no longer woke up to my alarm on time, sometimes hours late for work. This wouldn't do, so I decided to buy one of those outdoor light timers to turn my standing lamp on across the room at a certain time. This worked for about a week or so, but the timing quickly became off. No matter how many times I set it to the correct time, it would either go off way too early, way too late, or not at all. I decided it was time to just man up, open both doors, and let the sunlight help wake me up again. As soon as I turned my light out, the presence returned. It felt stronger than ever, as if it were infuriated that I shut it out of my room. However, the presence still stayed across the room from my bed, so I just forced myself to fall asleep each night, ignoring the presence lurking in the pitch-black corners of my room. In a fit of rebellion against the presence, I began shutting the doors on the weekends when I could afford to accidentally sleep in. Of course, the presence did not enjoy this decision of mine one bit. After a few weeks of shutting the thing out on weekends, the one thing I had hoped would never happen began to occur. The presence began to move closer to my bed. It was a Tuesday night when it first started. It moved ever so slightly from its preferred corner to the middle of the room. For the next few nights, it stayed in the center of the room and stopped roaming the opposite wall. The weekend was pretty peaceful. I didn't even feel it roaming the entertainment room the whole weekend. It was as if the presence scared itself by getting too close. That Sunday night, though, everything changed. As I turned the light out, preparing for the inevitable presence to come waltzing back into my room, it came quicker than it ever has before. It didn't go across the room to its usual spot or to the middle of the room. It came closer than ever before, just my nightstand in between it and myself. I was definitely frightened and couldn't think. All I could do was remain motionless and let the void drink me in, eyes shut tight. After a few minutes, unsure of the actual time span, the presence moved to the foot of my bed. The presence didn't stay still. I could feel it constantly shifting at the foot of my bed, pacing back and forth. I knew not how I could even attempt to sleep, feeling what seemed like contempt or possibly hatred coming from the foot of my bed. Thankfully, the presence calmed itself and moved back to the center of the room for the rest of the night. I only had to put up with whatever this was for another few weeks as my wedding date was approaching fast. I was very much ready to be rid of my parents' home. Whatever was in their basement was becoming too much for me to handle. Over the course of the few weeks leading up to my wedding, the presence would always come quickly and hover near my bed and at the foot of my bed. I slept less, ate less, and was becoming generally unpleasant to be around with this presence haunting me, compounding with the stress of my wedding. 
It was my second to last night being at my mother's house when I decided I wanted to know what was coming into my room. I don't know why it had never occurred to me before, so I dug through some old stuff of mine from when I was a child that my mother had lying around the house and grabbed a nightlight. I plugged that bastard in over by the corner the presents used to hang out at. Now I'd be able to see, even if it was only a little bit, what was entering my room. I also wondered if it would even enter due to the fact that a light was on, but with this nightmare almost over, I was feeling braver than ever. It was about 2 a.m. when I decided to go to sleep, so I plugged the nightlight in and hesitated at opening my door. There was no going back from this. Once I turn my light out, either that presence will rush in, or it won't, choosing to shy away from the nightlight. I breathed deeply, opened both doors, and darted for my bed. I again hesitated, turning my light off. I still had a chance to back out. I didn't have to work the next morning because it was the day before the wedding. I could still close both doors and sleep soundly. I mulled over this thought for a moment or two, and ultimately decided that if I didn't do it now, I'd never know. I turned the light out and, for the first time, kept my eyes open while drawing the covers up around me as close as possible. I couldn't see yet, as my eyes had not adjusted to the dim lighting. I could already feel the presence outside my doorway, waiting in the laundry room. My eyes began to cut through the shadows, and I could see the void had a shape. It was squat, sat low to the ground, but I couldn't see a full outline of the thing. I was terrified, never actually believing something would actually be there. I didn't budge, and I just stared at the thing, obscured by the darkness of the laundry room. I couldn't help myself and closed my eyes tight. I debated whether I'd open them or not for a good long while, but I knew for sure I wasn't going to move a muscle. I decided to peek again, and what I saw still chills me to my core this day. The squat creature I could now see was actually just crouched down with its hands placed on the floor between its feet, sitting in the middle of my room. I looked directly into its wide, unblinking eyes, completely horrified that my mother was crouched on the floor, staring intently at me, her head cocked to the side with a tiny grin on her face. Her curly, dark blonde hair was disheveled and all over the place. Had this been going on for over a year? My mother staring creepily at me while I slept? Did she do this to my sister? Was she possessed? A million questions raced through my mind in the span of seconds, but as quickly as I discovered it had been my mother watching me the entire time, she began to move out of the room. She slowly shifted her hands and feet, keeping them close to the floor, moving sideways to keep staring at me with her insane glare. She paused again at my doorway for the longest minute of my life and then vanished into the darkness of the laundry room. I couldn't feel her creepy stare coming from the laundry room. She must have moved on back to the entertainment room or straight back upstairs. I really hoped it was back upstairs, but I wasn't brave enough to find out yet. If my mom was crazy or something, I'd rather not provoke her. Who knows what she would do in that state of mind. I checked the time on my phone, and it had been over an hour since she left my room, and I'd stopped feeling her presence. I clicked my light on and sat up in bed. I thought maybe it'd be best to at least check on her, see if she did make it back to bed or not. That's how you die in horror movies, I thought. I could see the laundry room, and I knew she wasn't hiding in there, so I thought it best to at least close the doors. She never bothered to open them before. I got up and slowly made my way over to the laundry room. Not thinking about it, I glanced into the entertainment room and could see my mother, crouched in the same position on the far side of the room by the rocking chair, staring intently at me in the doorway. She kept tilting her head back and forth slowly, never breaking eye contact. I froze, a brand new wave of terror keeping me bolted to the floor. My mother began to shuffle toward me, tilting her head back and forth all the while, her smile now wide and seemingly menacing. I shut the door before she could reach me, ran into my room, and locked the door. I heard a thud as she slammed into the door. Once, twice, three times she slammed against the door. 
I was stricken with fear, gripping onto a pair of wooden nunchucks I'd bought from a flea market when I was younger. I couldn't hit my mother, could I? Either way, it made me feel safer. The thumping on the laundry room door stopped. A minute later, I could hear the creak of the hinges as the door slowly opened. The handle of my door began to turn back and forth, trying to push open the door. I sat up the entire night with the light on, quivering in the corner of my room, watching the door handle twist left and right. Around roughly six in the morning, the handle stopped turning. I waited until nine o'clock, making sure it was daytime out, before I unlocked the door and ventured out of the room. I peeked out into the laundry room. She wasn't there. Still gripping my nunchucks, I peeked around the now wide open door to the entertainment room, and she wasn't there either. I peeked a third time around the corner of the door that leads to the stairwell, and she wasn't there. I breathed a sigh of relief and walked upstairs to the living room and kitchen area. My mother was sitting in her usual seat at the dining room table, eating a bowl of cereal. Good morning, how'd you sleep? she asked in her usual chipper tone. Fine, I guess. Did you get up at all last night? She finished chewing the wad of cereal in her mouth and swallowed. No, I didn't get up. Why do you ask? Nothing. I just thought I heard something in the laundry room, lying right to her face. What was I supposed to say? Hey, why were you trying to kill me or something last night and staring at me while I slept every night since I've lived here? Oh, okay. It could have just been the house settling. You hear most everything in that basement, she said, shoveling in another mouthful of cereal. Yeah, it was probably nothing, I said, lying again. I let her get back to eating, and I began preparing for a long day ahead, getting everything ready for the wedding Saturday. All day, I couldn't shake the feeling of what had happened out of my mind. It wasn't a dream. I mean, I never went to sleep. I didn't have the chance to dream. Nevertheless, I still had one night left in that house and decided I needed a backup plan. I asked my best friend and best man to stay the night with me, using the excuse that I needed help waking up in the morning and staying on task for the wedding. I didn't dare tell him about what happened with my mother, partly because I didn't want to scare him and partly because I wasn't sure of it myself. It was just too surreal. We stayed up somewhat late, laughing and joking about the stupid things we did in high school and playing video games. He crashed on the floor and I'd forgotten all about last night. I was completely exhausted and crashed into bed. I waited to fall asleep for a while, wondering if my mother was going to make a repeat appearance with my friend here. She never did. I couldn't feel her presence in the entertainment room either. I quickly fell asleep, assured the presence of my friend was keeping whatever my mother was doing in check. The wedding went off without a hitch. It was the best time of my life. My wife and I drove to Kansas City and stayed for close to a week, having a blast on our honeymoon. I thought nothing of the events that had transpired only a few days before and had completely forgotten the entire event until it came time to open our wedding gifts. We poured out the box of cards that had been given to us and were slowly making our way through them, making a list of what each person had given us for writing thank you notes. I opened the card my mother gave us. It was one of those cards that had a pocket for money. I read the message written on the left of the card and pulled the money out of the pocket. A small slip of folded paper fell to the floor. My wife hadn't noticed, so I picked up and unfolded the note. In the note was scrawled in big, thick, messy letters, I'll always be with you. I quickly folded the note back up and threw it into the trash pile. My wife didn't need to know, and if I told her the story of what happened, she'd just be frightened of the darkness at night. So I kept the story and what was written in the note to myself. A week later, I woke up in our apartment one night in a cold sweat, my wife sleeping soundly beside me. I was feeling thirsty and got up for a drink of water from the kitchen. I made my way into the kitchen and poured a tall, cold glass. As I drank, I heard something shuffle outside by the front door. I didn't think of anything of it. It was probably the neighbor across from me. Then the door handle started to twist. Back and forth, the handle moved, squeaking slightly with each turn. I looked out the peephole, but no one was there. I closed the peephole and grabbed the handle to keep it from turning. 
I could feel the pressure of someone trying to twist the handle back and forth on the other side of the door. After a moment, they stopped trying to turn the handle. I looked out the peephole again and saw my mother crouched low to the ground, staring at me with wide, unblinking eyes and that menacing grin. The Russian Sleep Experiment Russian researchers in the late 1940s kept five people awake for 15 days using an experimental gas-based stimulant. They were kept in a sealed environment to carefully monitor their oxygen intake so the gas didn't kill them since it was toxic in high concentrations. This was before closed-circuit cameras, so they had only microphones and five-inch thick glass portal-sized windows into the chamber to monitor them. The chamber was stocked with books, cots to sleep on but no bedding, running water and toilet, and enough dried food to last all five for over a month. The test subjects were political prisoners deemed enemies of the state during World War II. Everything was fine for the first five days. The subjects hardly complained, having been promised falsely that they would be freed if they submitted to the test and did not sleep for 30 days. Their conversations and activities were monitored, and it was noted that they continued to talk about increasingly traumatic incidents in their past, and the general tone of their conversations took on a darker aspect after the four-day mark. After five days, they started to complain about the circumstances and events that led them to where they were, and started to demonstrate severe paranoia. They stopped talking to each other and began alternately whispering into the microphones and one-way mirrored portholes. Oddly, they all seemed to think they could win this trust of their experimenters by turning over their comrades, the other subjects in captivity, with them. At first, the researchers suspected this was an effect of the gas itself. After nine days, the first of them started screaming. He ran the length of the chamber, repeatedly yelling at the top of his lungs for three hours straight. He continued attempting to scream, but was only able to produce occasional squeaks. The researchers postulated that he had physically torn his vocal cords. The most surprising thing about this behavior is how the other captives reacted to it, or rather, didn't react. They continued whispering to the microphones until the second of the captives started to scream. The two non-screaming captives took the books apart, smeared page after page with their own feces, and pasted them calmly over the glass portals. The screaming promptly stopped. So did the whispering to the microphones. After three more days passed, the researchers checked the microphones hourly to make sure they were working, since they thought it impossible that no sound could be coming with five people inside. The oxygen consumption in the chamber indicated that all five must still be alive. In fact, it was the amount of oxygen five people would consume at a very heavy level of strenuous exercise. On the morning of the 14th day, the researchers did something they said they would not do to get a reaction from the captives. They used the intercom inside the chamber, hoping to provoke any response from the captives they were afraid were either dead or vegetables. They announced, We are opening the chamber to test the microphones. Step away from the door and lie flat on the floor or you will be shot. Compliance will earn one of you your immediate freedom. To their surprise, they heard a single phrase and a calm voice response. We no longer want to be freed. Debate broke out among the researchers and the military forces funding the research. Unable to provoke any more response using the intercom, it was finally decided to open the chamber at midnight on the 15th day. The chamber was flushed of the stimulant gas and filled with fresh air, and immediately voices from the microphone began to object. Three different voices began begging, as if pleading for the life of loved ones to turn the gas back on. The chamber was open, and soldiers sent in to retrieve the test subjects. They began to scream louder than ever, and so did the soldiers when they saw what was inside. Four of the five subjects were still alive although no one could rightly call the state that any of them were in life. The food rations past day five had not been so much as touched. 
There were chunks of meat from the dead test subject's thighs and chest stuffed into the drain of the, the center of the chamber, blocking the drain and allowing four inches of water to accumulate on the floor. Precisely how much of the water on the floor was actually blood was never determined. All four surviving test subjects also had large portions of muscle and skin torn away from their bodies. The destruction of flesh and exposed bone on their fingertips indicated that the wounds were inflicted by hand, not with teeth as the researchers initially thought. Closer examination of the position and angles of the wounds indicated that most, if not all, of them were self-inflicted. The abdominal organs below the ribcage of all four test subjects had been removed. While the heart, lungs, and diaphragms remained in place, the skin and most of the muscles attached to the ribs had been ripped off, exposing the lungs through the ribcage. All the blood vessels and organs remained intact. They had just been taken out and laid on the floor, fanning out around the eviscerated but still living bodies of the subjects. The digestive tract of all four could be seen to be working, digesting food. It quickly became apparent that what they were digesting was their own flesh that they had ripped off and eaten over the course of days. Most of the soldiers were Russian special operatives at the facility, but still many refused to return to the chamber to remove the test subjects. They continued to scream to be left in the chamber and alternately begged and demanded that the gas be turned back on, lest they fall asleep. To everyone's surprise, the test subjects put up a fierce fight in the process of being removed from the chamber. One of the Russian soldiers died from having his throat ripped out. Another was gravely injured by having his testicles ripped off and an artery in his leg severed by one of the subject's teeth. Another five of the soldiers lost their lives if you count ones that committed suicide in the weeks following the incident. In the struggle, one of the four living subjects had his spleen ruptured and he bled out almost immediately. The medical researchers attempted to sedate him, but this proved impossible. He was injected with more than ten times the human dose of a morphine derivative and still fought like a cornered animal, breaking the ribs and arms of one doctor. His heart was seen to beat for a full two minutes after he had bled out to the point there was more air in his vascular system than blood. Even after it stopped, he continued to scream and flail for another three minutes, struggling to attack anyone in reach and just repeating the word more, over and over, weaker and weaker, until he finally fell silent. The surviving three test subjects were heavily restrained and moved to a medical facility, the two with intact vocal cords continuously begging for the gas, demanding to be kept awake. The most injured of the three was taken to the only surgical operating room that the facility had. In the process of preparing the subject to have his organs placed back within his body, it was found that he was effectively immune to the sedative they had given him to prepare him for the surgery. He fought furiously against his restraint when the anesthetic gas was brought out to put him under. He managed to tear most of the way through a 4-inch wide leather strap on one wrist, even through the weight of a 200-pound soldier holding that wrist as well. It took only a little more anesthetic than normal to put him under, and the instant his eyelids fluttered and closed, his heart stopped. In the autopsy of the test subject that died on the operating table, it was found that his blood had tripled the normal level of oxygen. His muscles that were still attached to his skeleton were badly torn, and he had broken nine bones in the struggle to not be subdued. Most of them were from the force his own muscles had exerted on them. The second survivor had been the first of the group of five to start screaming. His vocal cords destroyed, he was unable to beg or object to surgery, and he only reacted by shaking his head violently in disapproval when the anesthetic gas was brought near him. He shook his head yes when someone suggested reluctantly they try the surgery without anesthetic, and did not react for the entire six-hour procedure of replacing his abdominal organs and attempting to cover them with what remained of his skin. The surgeon presiding stated repeatedly that it should be medically impossible for the patient to still be alive. One terrified nurse assisting the surgery stated that she had seen the patient's mouth curl into a smile several times whenever his eyes met hers. 
When the surgery ended, the subject looked at the surgeon and began to wheeze loudly, attempting to talk while struggling. Assuming this must be something of drastic importance, the surgeon had a pen and pad fetched so the patient could write his message. It was simple. Keep cutting. The other two test subjects were given the same surgery, both without anesthetic as well. Although they had to be injected with a paralytic for the duration of the operation, the surgeon found it impossible to perform the operation while the patients laughed continuously. Once paralyzed, the subjects could only follow the, an the attending researchers with their eyes. The paralytic cleared their system in an abnormally short period of time, and they were soon trying to escape their bonds. The moment they could speak, they were again asking for the stimulant gas. The researchers tried asking why they had injured themselves, why they had ripped out their own guts, and why they wanted to be given the gas again. Only one response was given, I must remain awake. All three subjects' restraints were reinforced, and they were placed back into the chamber, awaiting determination as, what, as to what should be done with them. The researchers, facing the wrath of their military benefactors for having failed the stated goals of their project, considered euthanizing the surviving subjects. The commanding officer and ex-KGB instead saw potential and wanted to see what would happen if they were put back on the gas. The researchers strongly objected, but were overruled. In preparation for being sealed in the chamber again, the subjects were connected to an EEG monitor and had their restraints padded for long-term confinement. To everyone's surprise, all three stopped struggling the moment it was let slip they were going back on the gas. It was obvious that at this point all three were putting up a great struggle to stay awake. One of the subjects that could speak was humming loudly and continuously. The mute subject was straining his legs against the leather bonds with all his might, first left, then right, then left again for something to focus on. The remaining subject was holding his head off his pillow and blinking rapidly. Having been the first to be wired for EEG, most of the researchers were monitoring his brainwaves in surprise. They were normal most of the time, but sometimes flatlined inexplicably. It looked as if he were repeatedly suffering brain death before returning to normal. As they focused on paper scrolling out of the brainwave monitor, only one nurse saw his eyes slip shut at the same moment his head hit the pillow. His brainwaves immediately changed to that of deep sleep, then flatlined for the last time as his heart simultaneously stopped. The only remaining subject that could speak started screaming to be sealed in now. His brainwaves showed the same flat lines as the one who had just died from falling asleep. The commander gave the order to seal the chamber with both subjects inside as well as three researchers. One of the named three immediately drew his gun and shot the commander point blank between the eyes, then turned the gun on the mute subject and blew his brains out as well. He pointed his gun at the remaining subject, still restrained to a bed as the remaining members of the medical and research team fled the room. I won't be locked in here with these things. Not with you, he screamed at the man scrapped to the table. What are you, he demanded. I must know. The subject smiled. Have you forgotten so easily, the subject asked. We are you. We are the madness that lurks within you all, begging to be free at every moment in your deepest animal mind. We are what you hide from in your bed every night. We are what you sedate into silence and paralysis when you go to the nocturnal haven where we cannot tread. The researcher paused then aimed at the subject's heart and fired. The EEG flatlined as the subject weakly choked out. So nearly free. No End House Let me start by saying that Peter Terry was addicted to heroin. We were friends in college and continued to be after I graduated. Notice that I say I. He dropped out after two years of barely cutting it. After I moved out of the dorms and into a small apartment, I didn't see Peter as much. We would talk online every now and then. AIM was king in pre-Facebook years. 
There was a period where he wasn't online for about five weeks straight. I wasn't worried. He was a pretty notorious flake and drug addict, so I assumed he, he just stopped caring. Then one night I saw him log on. Before I could initiate a conversation, he sent me a message. David, man, we need to talk. That was when he told me about the no-end house. It got that name because no one had ever reached the final exit. The rules were pretty simple and cliche. Reach the final room of the building and you win $500. There were nine rooms in all. The house was located outside the city, roughly four miles from my house. Apparently, Peter had tried and failed. He was a heroin and who-knows-what-the-fuck addict, so I figured the drugs got the best of him and he wigged out at a paper ghost or something. He told me it would be too much for anyone, that it was unnatural. I didn't believe him. I told him I would check it out the next night, and no matter how hard he tried to convince me otherwise, $500 sounded too good to be true. I had to go. I set out the following night. When I arrived, I immediately noticed something strange about the building. Have you ever seen or read something that shouldn't be scary, but for some reason a chill crawls up your spine? I walked toward the building, and the feeling of uneasiness only intensified as I opened the front door. My heart slowed, and I let a relieved sigh leave me as I entered. The room looked like a normal hotel lobby decorated for Halloween. A sign was posted in place of a worker. It read, Broom one this way. Eight more follow. Reach the end and you win. I chuckled and made my way to the first door. The first area was almost laughable. The decor resembled the Halloween Isle of Kmart, complete with sheet ghosts and animatronic zombies that gave a static growl when you passed by. At the far end was an exit. It was the only door besides the one I entered through. I brushed through the fake spiderwebs and headed for the second room. I was greeted by fog as I opened the door to room two. The room definitely upped the ante in terms of technology. Not only was there a fog machine, but a bat hung from the ceiling and flew in a circle. Scary. They seemed to have a Halloween soundtrack that one would find in a 99-cent store on loop somewhere in the room. I didn't see a stereo, but I guess they must have used a PA system. I stepped over a few toy rats that wheeled around and walked with a puffed chest across to the next area. I reached for the doorknob, and my heart sank to my knees. I did not want to open that door. A feeling of dread hit me so hard I could barely even think. Logic overtook me after a few terrified moments, and I shook it off and entered the next room. Room 3 is when things began to change. On the surface, it looked like a normal room. There was a chair in the middle of the wood-paneled floor. A single lamp in the corner did a poor job of lighting the area, casting a few shadows across the floor and walls. That was the problem. Shadows. Plural. With the exception of the chairs, there were others. I had barely walked in the door, and I was already terrified. It was at that moment that I knew something wasn't right. I didn't even think as I automatically tried to open the door I came through. It was locked from the other side. That set me off. Was someone locking the doors as I progressed? There was no way. I would have heard them. Was it a mechanical lock that set automatically? Maybe. But I was too scared to really think. I turned back to the room and the shadows were gone. The chair's shadow remained, but the others were gone. I slowly began to walk. I used to hallucinate when I was a kid, so I wrote off the shadows as a figment of my imagination. I began to feel better as I made it to the halfway point of the room. I looked down as I took my steps, and that's what I saw it. Or didn't see. My shadow wasn't there. I didn't have time to scream. I ran as fast as I could to the other door and flung myself without thinking into the room beyond. The fourth room was possibly the most disturbing. As I closed the door, all light seemed to be sucked out and put back into the previous room. I stood there, surrounded by darkness, not able to move. I'm not afraid of the dark, and never have been, but I was absolutely terrified. All sight had left me. I held my hand in front of my face, and if I didn't know what I was doing, I would never have been able to tell. Darkness doesn't describe it. I couldn't hear anything. It was dead silence. When you're in a soundproof room, you can still hear yourself breathing. You can hear yourself being alive. I couldn't. 
I began to stumble forward after a few moments, my rapidly beating heart the only thing I could feel. There was no door in sight. wasn't even sure there was one this time. The silence was then broken by a low hum. I felt something behind me. I spun around wildly, but could barely even see my nose. I knew it was there, though. Regardless of how dark it was, I knew something was there. The hum grew louder, closer. It seemed to surround me, but I knew whatever was causing the noise was in front of me, inching closer. I took a step back. I'd never felt that kind of fear. I can't really describe true fear. I wasn't even scared I was going to die. I was scared of what the alternative was. I was afraid of what this thing had in store for me. Then the lights flashed for a second and I saw it. Nothing. I saw nothing and I know I saw nothing there. The room was again plunged into darkness and the hum became a wild screech. I screamed in protest. I couldn't hear this goddamn sound for another minute. I ran backwards away from the noise and fumbled for the door handle. I turned and fell into room five. Before I describe room five, you have to understand something. I'm not a drug addict. I have no history of drug abuse or any sort of psychosis short of the childhood hallucinations I mentioned earlier, and those were only when I was really tired or just waking up. I entered the no-end house with a clear head. After falling in from the previous room, my view of room five was from my back, looking up at the ceiling. What I saw didn't scare me. It simply surprised me. Trees had grown into the room and towered above my head. The ceilings in this room were taller than the others, which made me think I was in the center of the house. I got up off the floor, dusted myself off, and took a look around. It was definitely the biggest room of them all. I couldn't even see the door from where I was. Various brush and trees must have blocked my line of sight with the exit. Up to this point, I figured the rooms were going to get scarier, but this was a paradise compared to the last room. I also assumed whatever was in room 4 stayed back there. I was incredibly wrong. As I made my way deeper into the room, I began to hear what one would hear if they were in a forest. Chirping bugs and the occasional flap of birds seemed to be my only company in this room. That was the thing that bothered me the most. I heard the bugs and other animals, but I didn't see any of them. I began to wonder how big this house was. From the outside, when I first walked up to it, it looked like a regular house. It was definitely on the bigger side, but this was almost a full forest in here. The canopy covered my view of the ceiling, but I assumed it was still there, however high it was. I couldn't see any walls either. The only way I knew I was still inside was that the floor matched the other rooms, the standard dark wood paneling. I kept walking, hoping that the next tree I passed would reveal the door. After a few moments of walking, I felt a mosquito fly onto my arm. I shook it off and kept going. A second later, I felt about ten more land on my skin at different places. I felt them crawl up and down my arms and legs, and a few made their way across my face. I flailed wildly to get them all off, but they just kept crawling. I looked down and let out a muffled scream, more of a whimper to be honest. I didn't see a single bug. Not one bug was on me, but I could feel them crawl. I heard them fly by my face and sting my skin, but I couldn't see a single one. I dropped to the ground and began to roll wildly. I was desperate. I hated bugs, especially ones I couldn't see or touch. But these bugs could touch me, and they were everywhere. I began to crawl. I had no idea where I was going. The entrance was nowhere in sight, and I still hadn't even seen the exit, so I just crawled my skin wriggling with the presence of those phantom bugs. After what seemed like hours, I found the door. I grabbed the nearest tree and propped myself up, mindlessly flapping my arms and legs to no avail. I tried to run, but I couldn't. My body was exhausted from crawling and dealing with whatever it was that was on me. I took a few shaky steps to the door, grabbing each tree on the way for support. It was only a few feet away when I heard it, the low hum from before. It was coming from the next room, and it was deeper. I can almost feel it inside my body, like when you stand next to an amp at a concert. The feeling of the bugs on me lessened as the hum grew louder. 
As I placed my hand on the doorknob, the bugs were completely gone, but I couldn't bring myself to turn the knob. I knew that if I let go, the bugs would return, and there was no way I could make it back to room four. I just stood there, my head pressed against the door marked six, and my hands shakily grasping the knob. The hum was so loud I couldn't even hear myself pretend to think. There was nothing I could do but move on. Room six was next, and room six was hell. I closed the door behind me, my eyes held shut, my ears ringing. The hum was surrounding me as the door clicked into place. The hum was gone. I opened my eyes in surprise, and the door I had shut was gone. It was just a wall now. I looked around in shock. The room was identical to room three, the same chair and lamp, but with the correct amount of shadows this time. The only real difference was that there was no exit door, and the one I came in through was gone. As I said before, I had no previous issues in terms of mental instability, but at that moment I fell into what I know now was insanity. I didn't scream. I didn't make a sound. At first, I scratched softly. The wall was tough, but I knew the door was there somewhere. I just knew it was. I scratched at where the doorknob was. I clawed at the wall frantically with both hands, my nails being filed down to the skin against the wood. I fell silently to my knees, the only sound in the room, the incessant scratching against the wall. I knew it was there. The door was there. I just knew it was there. I knew if I could just get past this wall. Are you all right? I jumped off the ground and spun in one motion. I leaned against the wall behind me, and I saw what it was that spoke to me. To this day, I regret ever turning around. There was a little girl. She was wearing a soft white dress that went down to her ankles. She had long blonde hair to the middle of her back and white skin and blue eyes. She was the most frightening thing I had ever seen, and I knew that nothing in my life will ever be as unnerving as what I saw in her. While looking at her, I saw something else. Where she stood, I saw what looked like a man's body, only larger than normal and covered in hair. He was naked from head to toe, but his head was not human and his toes were hooves. It wasn't the devil, but at that moment it might as well have been. The form had the head of a ram and the snout of a wolf. It was horrifying, and it was synonymous with the little girl in front of me. They were the same form. I can't really describe it, but I saw them at the same time. They shared the same spot in that room, but it was like looking at two separate dimensions. When I saw the girl, I saw the form, and when I saw the form, I saw the girl. I couldn't speak. I could barely even see. My mind was revolting against what it was attempting to process. I had been scared before in my life, and I had never been more scared than when I was trapped in the fourth room, but that was before room six. I just stood there, staring at whatever it was that spoke to me. There was no exit. I was trapped here with it. And then it spoke again. David, you should have listened. When it spoke, I heard the words of the little girl, but the other form spoke through my mind in a voice I won't attempt to describe. There was no other sound. The voice just kept repeating that sentence over and over in my mind, and I agreed. I didn't know what to do. I was slipping into madness, yet couldn't take my eyes off what was in front of me. I dropped to the floor. I thought I had passed out, but the room wouldn't let me. I just wanted it to end. I was on my side, my eyes wide open, and the form staring down at me. Scurrying across the floor in front of me was one of the battery-powered rats from the second room. The house was toying with me. But for some reason, seeing that rat pulled my mind back from whatever depths it was headed, and I looked around the room. I was getting out of there. I was determined to get out of that house and live and never think about this place again. I knew this room was hell, and I wasn't ready to take up a residency. At first, it was just my eyes that moved. I searched the walls for any kind of opening. The room wasn't that big, so it didn't take long to soak up the entire layout. The demon still taunted me, the voice growing louder as the form stayed rooted where it stood. I placed my hand on the floor, lifted myself up to all fours, and turned to scan the wall behind me. Then I saw something I couldn't believe. The form was now right at my back, whispering into my mind how I shouldn't have come. I felt its breath on the back of my neck, but I refused to turn around. 
A large rectangle was scratched into the wood with a small dent chipped away in the center of it. Right in front of my eyes, I saw the large seven I had mindlessly etched into the wall. I knew what it was. Room seven was just beyond that wall where room five was minutes ago. I don't know how I had done it. Maybe it was just my state of mind at the time, but I had created the door. I knew I had. In my madness, I had scratched into the wall what I needed the most, an exit to the next room. Room seven was close. I knew the demon was right behind me, but for some reason it couldn't touch me. I closed my eyes and placed both hands on the large seven in front of me. I pushed. I pushed as hard as I could. The demon was now screaming in my ear. It told me that I was never leaving. It told me that this was the end, but I wasn't going to die. I was going to live there in room six with it. I wasn't. I pushed and screamed at the top of my lungs. I knew I was going to push through the wall eventually. I clenched my eyes shut and screamed, and the demon was gone. I was left in silence. I turned around slowly and, and was greeted by the room as it was when I entered. Just a chair and a lamp. I couldn't believe it, but I didn't have time to dwell. I turned back to the seven and jumped back slightly. What I saw was a door. It wasn't the one I had scratched in, but a regular door with a large seven on it. My whole body was shaking. It took me a while to turn the knob. I just stood there for a while, staring at the door. I couldn't stay in room six. I couldn't. But if this was only room six, I couldn't imagine what seven had in store. I must have stood there for an hour, just staring at seven. Finally, with a deep breath, I twisted the knob and opened the door to room seven. I stumbled through the door, mentally exhausted and physically weak. The door behind me closed, and I realized where I was. I was outside. Not outside like room five, but actually outside. My eyes stung. I wanted to cry. I fell to my knees and tried, but I couldn't. I was finally out of that hell. I didn't even care about the prize that was promised. I turned and saw that the door I just went through was the entrance, and I walked to my car and drove home, thinking of how nice a shower sounded. As I pulled up to my house, I felt uneasy. The joy of leaving the no-end house had faded, and dread was slowly building in my stomach. I shook it off as residual from the house and made my way to the front door. I entered and immediately went up to my room. There on my bed was my cat, Baskerville. He was the first living thing I had seen all night, and I reached out to pet him. He hissed and swiped at my hand. I recoiled in shock, as he had never acted like that. I thought, whatever, he's an old cat. I jumped in the shower and got ready for what I was expecting to be a sleepless night. After my shower, I went to the kitchen to make something eat. I descended the stairs and turned into the family room. What I saw would be forever burned into my mind. My parents were lying on the ground, naked and covered in blood. They were mutilated to near unidentifiable states. Their limbs were removed and placed next to their bodies, and their heads were placed on their chest facing me. The most unsettling part was their expressions. They were smiling as though they were happy to see me. I vomited and sobbed there in the family room. I didn't know what had happened. They didn't even live with me at the time. I was a mess. Then I saw it, a door that was never there before, a door with a large eight scrawled on it in blood. I was still in the house. I was standing in my family room, but I was in room seven. The faces of my parents smiled wider as I realized this. They weren't my parents. They couldn't be, but they looked exactly like them. The door marked eight was across the room, behind the mutilated bodies in front of me. I knew I had to move on, but at that moment I gave up. The smiling faces tore into my mind. They grounded me where I stood. I vomited again and nearly collapsed. Then the hum returned. It was louder than ever, and it filled the house and shook the walls. The hum compelled me to walk. I began to walk slowly, making my way closer to the door and the bodies. I could barely stand, let alone walk, and the closer I got to my parents, the closer I came to suicide. The walls were now shaking so hard it seemed as though they were going to crumble, but still the faces smiled at me. As I inched closer, their eyes followed me. I was now between the two bodies, a few feet away from the door. The dismembered hands clawed their way across the carpet towards me, 
all while the faces continued to stare. New terror washed over me, and I walked faster. I didn't want to hear them speak. I didn't want the voices to match those of my parents. They began to open their mouths, and the hands were inches from my feet. In a dash of desperation, I lunged toward the door, threw it open, and slammed it behind me. Room 8. I was done. After what I had just experienced, I knew there wasn't anything else in this fucking house I could throw at me that I wouldn't live through. There was nothing short of the fires of hell that I wasn't ready for. Unfortunately, I underestimated the abilities of No End House. Unfortunately, things got more disturbing, more terrifying, and more unspeakable in Room 8. I still have trouble believing what I saw in Room 8. Again, the room was a carbon copy of Rooms 3 and 6, but sitting in the usually empty chair was a man. After a few seconds of disbelief, my mind finally accepted the fact that the man sitting in the chair was me. Not someone who looked like me. It was David Williams. I walked closer. I had to get a better look, even though I was sure of it. He looked up at me, and I noticed tears in his eyes. Please, please don't do it. Please don't hurt me. What? I asked. Who are you? I'm not going to hurt you. Yes, you are. He was sobbing now. You're going to hurt me, and I don't want you to. He sat in the chair with his legs up and began rocking back and forth. It was actually pretty pathetic looking, especially since he was me, identical in every way. Listen, who are you? I was now only a few feet from my doppelganger. It was the weirdest experience yet, standing there talking to myself. I wasn't scared, but I would be soon. You're going to hurt me. You're going to hurt me. If you want to leave, you're going to hurt me. Why are you saying this? Just calm down, all right? Let's try and figure this. And then I saw it. The David sitting down was wearing the same clothes as me, except for a small red patch on his shirt embroidered with the number nine. You're going to hurt me. You're going to hurt me. Don't, please. You're going to hurt. My eyes didn't leave that small number on his chest. I knew exactly what it was. The first few doors were plain and simple, but after a while they got a little more ambiguous. Seven was scratched into the wall, but by my own hands. Eight was marked in blood above the bodies of my parents. But nine, this number was on a person, a living person. Worse still, it was on a person that looked exactly like me. David, I had to ask. Yes, you're going to hurt me, you're going to hurt me. He continued to sob and rock. He answered to David. He was me, right down to the voice. But that was nine. I paced around for a few minutes while he sobbed in his chair. The room had no door, and similarly to room six, the door I came through was gone. For some reason, I assumed that scratching would get me nowhere this time. I studied the walls and floor around the chair, sticking my head underneath and seeing if anything was below. Unfortunately, there was. Below the chair was a knife. Attached was a tag that read, To David, from management. The feeling in my stomach as I read that tag was something sinister. I wanted to throw up, and the last thing I wanted to do was remove that knife from under the chair. The other David was still sobbing uncontrollably. My mind was spinning into an attic of unanswerable questions. Who put this here, and how did they get my name? Not to mention the fact that as I knelt on the cold wood floor, I also sat in that chair, sobbing in protest of being hurt by myself. It was all too much to process. The house and the management had been playing with me this whole time. My thoughts for some reason turned to Peter, and whether or not he got this far. If he did, if he met a Peter Terry sobbing in this very chair, rocking back and forth. I shook those thoughts out of my head. They didn't matter. I took the knife from under the chair, and immediately the other David went quiet. David, he said in my voice, what do you think you're going to do? I lifted myself from the ground and clenched the knife in my hand. I'm going to get out of here. David was still sitting in the chair, though he was very calm now. He looked up at me with a slight grin. I couldn't tell if he was going to laugh or strangle me. 
Slowly, he got up from the chair and stood facing me. It was uncanny. His height and even the way he stood matched mine. I felt the rubber hilt of the knife in my hand and gripped it tighter. I don't know what I was planning on doing with it, but I had a feeling I was going to need it. Now, his voice was slightly deeper than my own. I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to hurt you and I'm going to keep you here. I didn't respond. I just lunged and tackled him to the ground. I had mounted him and looked down, knife poised and ready. He looked up at me, terrified. It was like I was looking in a mirror. Then the hum returned, low and distant, though I still felt it deep in my body. David looked up at me as I looked down at myself. The hum was getting louder and I felt something inside me snap. With one motion, I slammed the knife into the patch on his chest and ripped down. Blackness fell in the room and I was falling. The darkness around me was like nothing I experienced up to that point. Room 4 was dark, but it didn't come close to what was completely engulfing me. I wasn't even sure if I was falling after a while. I felt weightless, covered in dark. Then a deep sadness came over me. I felt lost, depressed, and suicidal. The sight of my parents entered my mind. I knew it wasn't real, but I had seen it, and the mind has trouble differentiating between what is real and what isn't. The sadness only deepened. I was in room 9 for what seemed like days. The final room. And that's exactly what it was. The end. No end house had an end, and I had reached it. At that moment, I gave up. I knew I would be in that in-between state forever, accompanied by nothing but darkness. Not even the hum was there to keep me sane. I had lost all senses. I couldn't feel myself. I couldn't hear anything. Sight was completely useless here. I searched for a taste in my mouth and found nothing. I felt disembodied and completely lost. I knew where I was. This was hell. Room 9 was hell. Then it happened. A light. One of those stereotypical lights at the end of the tunnel. I felt ground come up from below me, and I was standing. After a moment or two of gathering my thoughts and senses, I slowly walked toward that light. As I approached the light, it took form. It was a vertical slit down the side of an unmarked door. I slowly walked through the door and found myself back where I had started. The lobby of No End House. It was exactly how I left it. Still empty, still decorated with childish Halloween decorations. After everything that had happened that night, I was still wary of where I was. After a few moments of normalcy, I looked around the place, trying to find anything different. On the desk was a plain white envelope with my name handwritten on it. Immensely curious, yet still cautious, I mustered up the courage to open the envelope. Inside was a letter, again handwritten. David Williams Congratulations! You have made it to the end of No End House. Please accept this prize as a token of great achievement. Yours forever, management. With the letter were five $100 bills. I couldn't stop laughing. I laughed for what seemed like hours. I laughed as I walked out to my car and laughed as I drove home. I laughed as I pulled into my driveway. I laughed as I opened my front door to my house and laughed as I saw the small tin etched into the wood. Okay, so that was our first set of maybe true, but probably not creepypasta stories. Unless you're like me and just want to pretend they're true. Uh, So, here are a few actually true stories from people on Reddit who were inspired by a recent Reddit creepypasta thread of stuff that has happened to them. And I've picked out a few that freaked me out. So, the first one is from Reddit user... Adacore, ADA core. This happened to a friend of mine. She told me about it a year or so ago. We'll call her Minji. 
Minji is in her late 20s and works as an English tutor in South Korea. One evening, a few years ago, she was tutoring a high school boy. They were up studying pretty late, and the buses stopped running. Being a long way from his house, the boy asked if he could crash on her floor overnight and get the first bus the next morning. Minji was very reluctant, because inviting a teenage male student to stay the night didn't sound like a great idea, but he was begging her, and eventually she relented. They went back to her one-room apartment, and she got into the bed while he laid a blanket out on the floor, and they both fell asleep. A few hours later, at maybe 2 a.m., the boy wakes Minji up. I'm really hungry, he says. Let's go get some food. Minji opens her eyes and looks up up at him in disbelief. Food? Now? It's 2 a.m. Go back to bed. But the student insists. No, I'm so hungry. Let's eat something now. She tells him that there's some ramen in the kitchen and he can fix himself some. This doesn't satisfy him. He doesn't want ramen. There's a 24-hour place just down the road. Let's go there. Eventually, after several minutes of persuasion, the boy gets Minji to come with him to the restaurant. They leave the apartment and head out. As soon as they're on the street, the boy turns to Minji and says, I'm not hungry. I woke up in the middle of the night and looked under your bed. There's a man sleeping there. They call the police and discover that a homeless man had been living in Minji's apartment, sleeping under her bed for over two months. The boy only saw him because he was lying on her floor, so he had a clear view under the bed. The police arrested the man, and thankfully there were no other issues. But that's by far the creepiest thing that's ever happened to anyone I know. And another one from Reddit user Fat Cage. My grandfather died last year sometime when my son was maybe a year old. We had dinner with the whole family every Friday night, so my son had seen him several times. My grandfather was a very quiet, proud man, but when he thought he was alone or unseen, he would make silly faces at my son to get a laugh. A couple nights after his funeral, my son, who liked to crawl into bed with us in the middle of the night, started just laughing uncontrollably at like 2 a.m. So I get out of bed to see what's going on and find my son sitting in the middle of the living room, in the dark, laughing. I say, hey buddy, what are you doing? In toddler speak, he says, Papa, funny. I got a little nervous for some reason and went to pick him up and bring him to our room for the rest of the night. And as I'm hauling him away, he says, Bye, Papa, and blows a kiss at absolutely nothing I can see. And another one from Reddit poster Orange Derps. A few weeks ago, my girlfriend and I were sleeping together when I woke up to her saying, What are you doing? She sometimes talks in her sleep, but this sounded so coherent and urgent that it jolted me awake and I asked what she was talking about. She then woke up and said that she thought she saw someone at the end of the bed. Thinking it was just a dream or semi-awake hallucination, we thought nothing of it and went back to sleep. About an hour later, I woke up and saw someone standing on the bed with the sheets wrapped up and twisted to their neck. I didn't know what to do, but the first thing that came out of my mouth was, What are you doing? My girlfriend then woke me up. I had been dreaming the exact same thing that she did and said the exact same thing. I know it's the power of suggestion or whatever, but fuck that. Okay, and last one is a two-parter. The first one from Scribbling Deaths. When I was in 8th grade, I went on a school trip that was called the Louisiana Tour. It was mostly going around to significant sites in South Louisiana. One of the places we went was Myrtle's Plantation, which is considered to be one of the most haunted places in the country. There are all kinds of stories about the place, but at one point we were standing in a room as a part of a larger group, and the tour guide was talking about something. I don't remember what. As I'm standing there, I start to hear what sounds like someone hitting a piano key. After I heard it a couple times, I started to look around for the source of the noise. I didn't see a piano, but I kept hearing it. So I asked my friends who were standing near me if they had heard it, and they said no. When I heard it again, I said there it is again, and they, that they must have heard it. They thought I was crazy. So I went back to looking around the room. Everyone's eyes were on the tour guide except for one woman. 
She caught my eye and pointed at me and then at her ear with a questioning look. I realized she was asking if I heard it too, and I nodded. At this point, the tour guide starts telling a story about a soldier who had died there and that he played the piano and multiple guests had reported hearing him playing in the night. I honestly didn't know what to think. I guess I still don't. I talked to the woman as we were all leaving the room, and she had heard the exact same thing as me, but her husband and son had not. And then A.B. Derp 1022 responds, I work at the Myrtles Plantation, and I have so many of these stories and events that visitors tell me. The creepiest one, in my opinion, is that you can sleep at the plantation kind of like a bed and breakfast. Well, we have a room that is filled with those creepy ceramic dolls. There's one doll, though, that was one of the children's favorites and always was in the bed with her at night. The child later died, too long, too long to explain, and the doll stayed on the bed with her. When we started to house guests at the Myrtles, we kept the doll on the bed in memory of the child. The first night, when someone slept in the room, they moved the doll to get more comfortable. In the morning, the doll was back in the bed with its hands on the guest's throat. She came out outraged, accusing us that we had did something to her room. No one went in or out of her room that night at all. The next guest moved the doll as well, and when he was sleeping, he heard tapping on the wood floors. He woke up and noticed the doll on the floor where the sound was coming from. Everyone who stays in the room and moves the doll, the doll will come back and go back in its bed. Okay, I'll be completely honest with you guys. I did not read that second part before reading it just now. And had I known it had been about a doll, I probably would not have read it. It's not that doll stories really freak me out that much. I mean, they are freaky. But when I was a kid, my grandma would always give me those Madame Alexander dolls that would have to go on the shelf in my room. And so I had to convince myself from basically a very young age that dolls aren't scary. Otherwise, I would not have been able to sleep as a child, I don't think. And uh, So there probably won't be too many doll stories on here for that reason. Uh, but that one was definitely creepy. Oh, with the doll on the, with the doll's hand on the guest's throat. Oh my gosh. Uh, uh, mm, no, no, thank you. Anyway, that about does it for this episode of Tales from the Other Side. Um, hope you enjoyed it. Hope you got spooked. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at tftos podcast. And on Instagram now at Tales from the Other Side. And also, 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 don't forget to submit your own ghost stories to Tales from the Other Side 7 at gmail.com. And I hope I'm not jumping the gun on this because I still don't have my work schedule, but which is ridiculous. It's Friday. I should have my work schedule for Tuesday. Anyway, uh, Halloween. Tuesday, October 31st, I'm going to be doing something live on Instagram uh, at some point during the day. I'm hoping it's going to be able to be at night, but I may be working Tuesday night. We'll see. So follow Twitter, follow Instagram, and make sure you stay up to date on that because you won't want to miss it, or I think you won't want to miss it. I think it's going to be really cool. So yeah, just... Um, Follow Twitter, follow Instagram, send us your stories, and stay spooky, guys.